0: Wait.
1: To another episode of the Always Already podcast, um, epistemic unruliness stream. This is one of your hosts, James,
2: and your other host, John, and we are very thrilled today to have with us Joel Alden Schlosser, who is associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Bryn Mawr College, um, the author in 2014 of What Would Socrates Do: Self-Examination, Civic Engagement, and the Politics of Philosophy. And the book we will be talking about today, Herodotus in the Anthropocene, um, out this year from University of Chicago. Joel, thank you for joining us on the Always Already podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so I think we'd like to start with kind of a very, with both a question as well as a personal question and also kind of a big picture question um, about the book. And that is, if you can tell us um, kind of what your own personal relationship with herodotus and reading herodotus is and then at what point or like maybe through which uh dynamic and relational process in the spirit of the book (laughs) did you come to turn to herodotus to think through or think with the anthropocene
0: yeah i mean it's uh, i'm happy to talk about the intersection of the personal and this book too because I think it, I hope, was evident in the reading of the book that it is a really personal book. Um, and I hope all my writing is at some level. So, you know, a little bit of background um, and a couple of stories. I, I, I generally say that the reason that I study antiquity and ancient Greece and Athens in particular is that I've always been interested in democracy. And something sort of drew me back to thinking about the origins of the term and that moment uh, when the people rose up and said, we want to govern ourselves and we're going to call this democratia, the power of the people um, that, that happened in Athens in the 6th uh, century. And that's a story that Herodotus tells. And uh, he's the only person that we have the full account of that story from, uh, of the creation of Athenian democracy. And he's the first person who uses that word, Demokratia. Um, so that's the way I like to tell the story. But the way that the story actually sort of happened is, I was um, probably much like you, John and James, one of those undergraduates who goes into the professor's office and says, like, what should I be reading? Or like, I want to read this thing. And being the kind of uh, young man that I was, it was Nietzsche that I wanted to read. And so I went into my professor's office and said, I want to do an independent study on Nietzsche. And he said, "Um, you know, I think that if you're going to study Nietzsche, you really need to study the Greeks and Plato first. Uh, And this is before I had studied any Greek or or any uh, uh, ancient uh, texts. Uh, I didn't take any classics as an undergraduate, but I fell in love with Plato's Symposium and uh, read and reread it. And that motivated me to go study Greek. Um, And in the course of studying Greek, I um, was given the first book of Herodotus's histories, which is a a, a text that people can read relatively early on in Greek study and I just like was so captured by his sense of humor uh, and these wonderful stories that seem to be so alive with multiple meanings um, and the kind of scope of the history that he starts. He's going to talk about this Persian war. He says, well, you know, to really explain how the war originated, we've got to go back multiple generations um, and tell a story about somebody who wasn't even involved in this war. And I like that, that, uh, that sense that an inquiry is always going to be bigger than the boundaries that you put around it felt to me really um, compelling and uh, true. So that, that was the sort of personal um, first encounter with Herodotus reading him in Greek and reading book one. Um, And then I had this wonderful opportunity um, to return to my alma mater, Carleton college, right as I was finishing my uh, dissertation and The uh, professor who I was replacing taught this course called Justice Among Nations, which was sort of like theories of international relations. And in that course, you always read Thucydides uh, because he is the founder of so-called realism school of thought. And people read the Melian Dialogue in his uh, history to see the encounter between power and morality um, and how power refuses morality. The, The just is the rule of the stronger I had had that encounter of Herodotus a few years ago and been waiting for a moment uh, to uh, spend more time with him. And, uh, you know, again, like a a classic sort of uh, academic thing, I'm going to force myself to really learn this by committing to teach it, even though I'm not yet ready to teach it. Uh, So I said, how about I teach Herodotus alongside Thucydides just to see this interesting contrast as the two sort of historians of war um, and of democracy in antiquity, Um, and the person I was replacing said, sure, try it out. Um, and so I put it on the course catalog books and a bunch of students enrolled for it. And so I found myself intensely reading Herodotus, you know, weeks before we were going to actually dive into the text. Um, and it was one of the best courses that I've ever taught. Um, maybe still, uh, um, top one, top two or three courses because it brought together students from. Classics from philosophy, from international relations, which is its own major, uh, and political science, uh, kind of grappling with what do what do we make of this text? Um, can it be uh, meaningful today? And this was in 2010, and so the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were part of the news, and the sort of the surge. And I don't know if you remember this famous PowerPoint slide that General McChrystal made about like how all the complex relations uh, were connected. Uh, in Afghanistan. And it was just totally ridiculous, the idea that you could sort of on a slide encompass all of this. that uh, We're talking about how political science was too limited and we needed uh, stories that acknowledged non-humans and that went back into the past uh, and that, uh, well, that didn't necessarily have clear conclusions um, or endings, that that sort of broad form of inquiry was what was called for in the 21st century. And Uh, when we're talking about very different peoples and cultures and places encountering each other. So I wrote a piece um, out of that course experience on Herodotus' realism, um, sort of saying there's another kind of realism that doesn't take for granted that states are the most important actors and that, you know, the rise of one state's power is going to threaten or uh, inspire fear in another and that that's sort of how the world works, which is what realists who look to Thucydides say. Um, and instead, there's a realism that's coming from Herodotus that's uh, much more provisional and situated and I, what I called in the book itinerant, you know, that is committed to forms of knowledge that are, ha- that are gained firsthand or secondhand with due attribution from others. And so isn't trying to get this systems level theorizing, you know, of the, the, the view from nowhere. Um, and that piece kind of seeded the idea for the book. It was a little bit later that the, that the Anthropocene became a useful place to think from. Um, I mean, partly the Anthropocene became more and more uh, obviously the thing, the place that I felt like I had to think from um, as the way of encompassing this climate catastrophe and this broader than climate catastrophe um, that we're living in right now. But it uh, a lot of there were a lot of people thinking the Anthropocene in ways that felt similar to, um, Herodotus. So people that I know you've talked about on this show, for instance, like Anna Singh or Jane Bennett or Bruno Latour, uh, whose work I was reading and thinking, oh, wow, like Herodotus can actually, is part of this conversation. Like in certain ways, he's anticipating the move towards their more material, um, or, um, concern with the non-human forms of inquiries. Um, so that was a, a, a series of long, long stories, which I hope uh, begins to answer your question. But what do you think about that?
1: No, I think that that definitely answers the question and helps us um, position you within a multiple context. Right, the context of your your disciplinary studies and, and and your coming to political theory as a young student, but then also coming of age in the Anthropocene, right? And mm-hmm. uh, we might need to, I'll ask this question, and then if you feel like you want to define the Anthropocene a little bit more, you can. But I think a lot of our listeners probably know what we're referring to when we talk about the Anthropocene and the climate catastrophe um, that is entailed in that heuristic. And I want to ask you, we'll start this way, right? We'll go to like the big horizon that I think you're writing towards and that Herodotus that you're pulling out of Herodotus and that Mm -hmm. is operating in his work is this idea of eudaimonia, Mm -hmm. um, which might be translated as human flourishing or just like the flourishing life. You'll hear sometimes, um, you have a, a, a vision of it that becomes earthly flourishing and I guess here is where my question for you is, do you want to position eudaimonia alongside some of these other new materialisms that are describing and and gesturing towards the the crisis of the Anthropocene? Mm -hmm. And then show us, I guess, like, you know, and if you feel that you need to explain Anthropocene more in order to position why eudaimonia intervenes in this way or anticipates the intervention...
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, But I'm I'm curious to hear more about that. And like this idea of flourishing. um, Right. Because the word flourish already has flower in its own Mm -hmm. ecology. Right. So it's already an ecological term.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's a great question. Uh, And I, I mean, I'll say some mo, a little bit more about the anthropo, Anthropocene, and I don't know what the correct pronunciation of it is, so I'm fine if we're pronouncing it in a different way I think it's
2: like in uh, part like a disciplinary sort of thing, like what discipline you came to thinking about the Anthropocene huh? from defines the way you pronounce it. But.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's like a tell of your training uh, and your and your perspective. Um, I mean, it's also a word that I find very frustrating because like the whole formation of it, the scene is um, – that's at the end is just because of the Holocene is what we were in before so-called. And that was like the wholly new era because there, there's a whole new sort of set of uh, living things that we found in the historic, in the historic record. It doesn't make sense to say the new human era, but people just created the term by putting Anthropo before scene. Um, But the reason that Anthropo is there is because uh, the most basic idea is that human beings are now responsible for, a sort of shift in the geological record um, that you could argue is traceable to kind of the advent of uh, global settler colonialism uh, and sort of the invention of the plantation, which is why people like Haraway are calling it the plantation ocene I think there are good arguments for that. Um, but a lot of people put it in the 19th century with the burning of uh, fossil fuels and the sort of carbonization of the economy, uh, the global economy. So I think, you know, Uh, your listeners, our listeners are probably more sophisticated than this. But a lot of people who think about climate change um, think about sustainability as the goal. Um, Like, how do we uh, not use all of our resources? How do we steward them and conserve them? And being green is about being sustainable. Um, And to me, that sort of uh, begs the question of what's worth sustaining. Uh, And I don't think that what we have right now is really worth sustaining, um, and nor is it sustainable, but I don't really care if it's sustainable, um, at a certain level because it's not worth sustaining. We need radical change. And what eudaimonia is helpful for doing is saying, there's actually a way for us to think about what is worth sustaining. Um, and that is a kind of flourishing, like a flowering and, and a coming into, um, the fullest, uh, development of, uh, what we are as beings, as humans and non-humans and as sort of, uh, as a, as a, a kind of cosmos, um, a living, living thing of earth. Um, you know, you might think about like sort of Gaia and I invoke Gaia and James Lovelock's uh, thesis at one point in the book, like what would it look like for all of the biodiversity, um, to be flourishing in the earth? It certainly wouldn't look anything like the way it, the earth is now, right? Uh, when all these species are being killed and, um, when many humans are not flourishing or are far from flourishing, um, So eudaimonia is like the kind of one of the big concepts in ancient Greek ethics. um, And it's usually just thought in human terms. And uh, like Aristotle in particular is the the big thinker of eudaimonia. um, And it's just human for him. Uh, What happened with Herodotus, and this is actually, you know, for a lot of, for my, both of my books, I think that I came to the most interesting ideas very close to the finishing of the book. Um, and this idea of earthly flourishing was one of them. I had I had done a full manuscript workshop on the book and had the whole thing, what I thought was done, and this kind of came out um, as a way of articulating how Herodotus is more than just an ecological thinker. He's also thinking about flourishing. Um, so earthly flourishing in Herodotus adds the non-human and adds a kind of contingency um, or you might say luck or lack of luck as necessary for earthly flourishing. It's not enough for human beings to create um, structures of uh, freedom that are sustainable and and, um, responsive to non-humans because you also need um, the gods with you. And we might today might not be comfortable with talking about the divine or gods as um, having much influence on our lives. Although I think maybe we should be more comfortable with that, but Herodotus is Useful for introducing the gods, but not personifying them like in the way that sort of Homer did. Instead, using them as kind of stand-ins for things that are not explicable, that don't fully understand. Um, so I often thought about the gods as kind of indicating what uh, Nassim Taleb calls black swan events—you know, the things that are actually like fundamental changes in the way that uh, human structures and human life is uh, organized, but are unpredictable. Um, which is what makes them definitionally black swans. So Herodotus is, is attentive to those and, sort of, and sees those events as really determinative of human flourishing and earthly flourishing. Um, and that means that we can do really well and, like, as communities that are uh, acknowledging and including as much as possible the non-participants who are also affected, uh, and yet we can't um, guarantee earthly flourishing. Um, But that's the horizon that I think Herodotus' inquiries help us to see, identify, and um, pursue, even if the inquiry that he sets out isn't going to guarantee um, that earthly flourishing.
1: You you mentioned something there, and this is, thank you for giving us your your Nietzschean um, origination story, (laughs) because now it's making me, I want to ask a follow-up question here about the idea of the gods, right, in a kind of, uh, scare quotes, and, and this—you know—if the if the death of the gods becomes the subsequent death of man, right? Then keeping the gods as a force, maybe or like an elemental force, or how how you want to describe it. But mm-hmm. also in the book, you point out that the word eudaimonia has daimon in it, which mm-hmm. involves fate. And so I'm mm-hmm. curious. And obviously, you're talking to a religion professor now, right? So I'm going to get really nerdy about this, but. What is your relationship? What do you see the gods doing here that is different from mythology, um, but that is more mm-hmm. online with like new materialism?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm so glad to be talking to a religion professor about this. Um, so uh,
1: that makes two of us. I like, can't <laughs> 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 <people> be <laughs> happy to be talking to a religion professor. But
0: with hope, there will be other uh, listeners who can join our join our okay. duo. Um, so. Yeah, I think, I mean, and maybe I need to hear a little bit more about what you mean by mythology, but I'll try to to work with what I think that you mean. So...
1: Well, I could just say this really quick. Yeah. What's the difference between Herodotus and Homer Mm -hmm. actually invoking the Hellenic gods of Mount Olympus?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one thing is that Herodotus doesn't invoke a, a named pantheon of gods. So he frequently, he'll refer to the God in a way that sometimes is translated as Zeus. Um, but, um, that just means God in ancient Greek Dios. Um, and he doesn't name any other gods, although he does name sacred sites where he thinks particular gods might've intervened. You know, there's some, something that happens at this shrine. And then, uh, there's a response, which may be because of that shrines uh, God being violated, but he doesn't attribute agency to the God. Um, One so one one example is I've been thinking, and this doesn't come up in the book. It's one of those ideas that I realized uh, was worth writing about after I finished the book, Um, and maybe I'll publish it some someday. Is rivers? So Herodotus loves rivers, and one of the one of the great ways to distinguish him from Thucydides is to count the number of rivers, which I did. Herodotus names sixty six rivers in his histories, and Thucydides names uh, about a dozen. And some of those rivers Herodotus' praises to the skies, like he just thinks they're amazing. He's just, he sees that rivers create um, uh, diverse encounters, you know, that like they're spaces of of transit, but also spaces of uh, place and inhabitation. Um, Homer also describes rivers a lot, and uh, but rivers for Homer are, they're not Olympian gods, but they are gods. And so there's a famous moment when the river, um, gets angry at being violated and acts, uh, against the, uh, the Greeks, uh, towards the end of the Iliad. Um, and it acts like a human being, you know, it's anthropomorphized in Homer's telling Herodotus never does that. But what he does do is he allows rivers to be agents. So he ascribes to them, um, dis- uh, volition to some degree, he says of the Nile river, which is the river he probably admires the most. Um, that if it would choo- if it so chose, it could eliminate all of Egypt, um, because the Nile is responsible for. Um, he's using language that's usually used for human beings. It's responsible for the Egyptian civilization. Um, so he's. I think that he's really, he's he's kind of in this transitional area uh, between um, giving uh, giving gods a kind of uh, status akin to like superhuman human beings and turning away from gods in part because they are not fully explicable uh, which is why he's still giving them agency and power um, but not giving them sort of personality um, which i know is a a term probably that has a lot of specific meaning in like christian theology and i don't mean it that specifically i mean like they're not being named they don't have human-like attributes um and i think one way that uh you see that in his inquiry that I talk about, and this is probably something you're also going to want to ask about, James. I assume is wonder, uh, which is also like a, a big, big question <laughs> <Yeah>. term, right? <laughs> to, uh, to like go
2: behind the curtain, like James and I are are texting right now about wonder in your
0: book. <laughs> <laughs> so, are we going to ask this oh, question yes. now or later? Right? <laughs> well, yeah. we can we can save it next. I'll let you follow up, but I'll just say on on this that, like, I so. I think that wonder for Herodotus is a way that he approaches the strange and inexplicable and he describes human things and non-human things, both as things that are wonderful, uh, that are taumata, that he can establish some relationship to, but not reduce, uh, not explain, leave strange in some way, while also kind of putting them on the map of things that are um, worth attending um, and worth admiring. Um, and worth um, seeing as kind of magnetic centers in the world and the terrains that he's describing. Uh, so, that it's I, the wonder has a little bit, and maybe this is partly my uh, reading into it, has a little bit of a sense of reverence um, because these things are, are, are beyond human comprehension, um, but also as a sense of respect um, that these are things that we can't, um, we can't contain. Um, and we can kind of give them words, um, but not fully explain them.
1: I, okay. So I will ask another follow-up here mm-hmm. on, on wonder um, a bit, um, but you kind of already gave it to us here in that parodity and wonder is about those things that are not going to be figured out. Right. Cause I, there, mm-hmm. more, you know, wonder can turn on, I'm wondering, through something right towards mm-hmm. a conclusion, or you can just sit in wonder and let the affect of wonder do its own work
0: mm-hmm.
1: and It can become, you know, its own experience. Or I'm thinking of aporia maybe as that kind of like just bewilderment that exists for its own sake. Um, yeah. And maybe, I don't know, cause this is going to open up other questions about the nomoi. So I think John's going to ask you about that next. So we'll, we're going to bring it back to that um, mm-hmm. at some point. But this question of wonder how wonder would operate within the inquiry, right? Where wonder mm-hmm. actually becomes a method of humility or becomes a method of maybe deconstruct, like an anticipation of deconstruction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, I'm thinking about the way you describe the known world as a horizon that continues to move with Herodotus.
0: Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Um, And so wonder, I, you know, obviously wonder can go, we can keep it into this, like the, the God talk, but I want to think about getting back to wonder as a political affect that can actually intervene right on the ground. um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, and I, I want to say something about that and back to Aporia because, you know, Aparia so as John said, like, I wrote a book about soccer. Oh, yeah.
1: I, I should just pronounce all these things like they're Italian or Spanish. Right?
0: Aporia <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> is, is is good for me too. I remember when I started learning Greek, you know, you get all these affects and then it's so much of it is about like a sort of unfortunate hierarchy. And, this, and among classicists, there's always this sense of like his Greek is good or it's not good. And so <laughs> pronouncing it in a particular way is like a sign that you've been studying the Greek. Um, uh, one of my friends who's a classicist read the book and at, at a certain point amid all the other more substantive engagements, he says to me, Joel, you really needed to have somebody proof the Greek because there are a couple of errors in here. And I said, well, that's just to make sure that you know you have a job, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not a philologist. Um, so I, I, I don't claim any authority about my pronunciation, but the, like, aporia is, um so this, this, you know, etymologically, a lack of exit, a lack of a, of a gate or a, 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 a way forward. And it's famously like in the early Socratic dialogues, they are aporetic because they don't come to a conclusion. They have a question of like, what is, uh, you know, think about the, the euthyphro, what is piety? And we don't know by the end. We eliminate all these potential definitions. You know, you go to the end of the, the maze path and there's, it's blocked. We never escape from the maze of what this is. Um, and Herodotus doesn't use that language, uh, I think, because wonder, uh, for him, is the starting point of an inquiry that is sort of unfinished and and not unending. And so I, I love that connection with deconstruction, because deconstruction is also about, as far as I understand, um, seeing that the structures we've set up, that it maybe created aporia in the first place, because, you know, we believe in the principle of non-contradiction or you know, other sort of um, elements of logic that those don't actually hold all the time. And we kind of come back to these undecidable or irreducible moments. Um, And Herodotus, I think, is really that kind of thinker. And he's not driven to finding the exit. Uh, You know, he's more interested in the journey and the the inquiry itself. Um, At the end of the book that he's set up as a series of uh, as this inquiry into what was the origin of this war between the, the Greeks and the barbarians, uh, or the Persians, we, we have innumerable answers, not any of which is like a final. Um, and like, I think that's just truer, uh, to about as a statement about reality, um, than saying that this is what causes war. And of course, it's very frustrating to political scientists that want to say, you know, let's, let's test these variables and see, see which ones, uh, have the best explanation. Um, So one last thing on that is, um, you know, Herodotus describes the beginning of his inquiry as uh, there are a bunch of wonderful things that happened in this war. Uh, And he uses the word for wonder in that first uh, sentence of the whole history. Um, And I think that that's one way to think about this affect is that he is the whole thing is propelled by wonder. Um, So it does involve like turning over stones and trying to figure out what is what, but it also involves just retelling some of the stories that are amazing um, and naming the objects. And that, that affect, um, that feeling uh, that's, that wonder inspires is one of a kind of humble curiosity um, and also like delight uh, and pleasure in the sort of myriad diversity of earthly existence.
2: Mm. So I want to pick up on kind of the, the Aporia sort of question Mm -hmm. because i think it's one it's an aporia that like i experience reading the book and perhaps it's an aporia that's internal to being somebody trained as a political theorist in our particularly kind of disciplinary or subdisciplinary um Mm -hmm. facing or trying to think through the anthropocene and that Mm -hmm. is that one of the Tensions. I think it's a productive tension that I read in the book is that you and maybe both you and Herodotus right, are trying to attend to this, to, to the liveliness of non-human actants mm-hmm. and also trying to hold on to the activity of human collectives and in some ways very specifically human collectives. Um, and I'm wondering if that's a tension wonder, I wonder if that's a tension that you mm-hmm. felt at all um, as you were working on this book and then maybe more specifically, how is it that Herodotus helps us think through that tension as we consider the Anthropocene? Like what's specifically about Herodotus and maybe it has to do with wonder or maybe it has to do with kind of his willingness to sit in some irresolution
0: um, mm-hmm.
2: that, that, that helps us kind of navigate and kind of grapple with that tension.
0: Yeah. And that's, that is the, the tension that, um, I don't resolve in the book. And then I think upon finishing it, I realized I wish that I had had uh, more time to kind of engage it more directly um, because a late reader sort of pointed out. And I think this is true that I'm constantly talking about the non-humans, but I don't give the non-human much voice. Um, And I probably end up giving it a little less than Herodotus does uh, in part because as you're saying, like as political theorists, I, there's, there's, There's one thing that I'm sort of trained to think about, which is how is this going to be taken up politically? Like what are the politics of this? As uh, my teacher would always ask me. Um, So in that respect, what are the politics of it? I think I say in the book, Herodotus is writing from the human perspective. He's writing to other people, uh, listeners and readers um, who are human, who are going to take up, uh, I think especially his reflections on nomoi, on the culture, customs and laws of political communities and how those nomoi could be arranged to best support earthly flourishing while recognizing that they cannot guarantee or achieve earthly flourishing. Um, and that, that last part of like recognizing that they cannot guarantee or achieve it is where the non-humans come in and by uh, needing to develop those nomoi in a responsive, uh, accommodating, adaptive way, uh, is, is all the Herodotus can do. Um, but not the, how do we, um, how do we hold a space for non-humans recognizing that it, the we that's doing it is not, um, non-human, <laughs> you know, it, mm-hmm. I was going to say, mm-hmm. uh, excludes all non-humans. I mean, there are non-humans among us, right. And within us, uh, as Livy Anker's work is, and others, people have pointed out, but we are human beings doing the constituting or the representing, um, and I think that on that respect, what, what I came to in the book is that Herodotus is modeling in the form of the inquiry, in creating a, a form, a written form that holds together humans and non-humans, and that in the best way possible gives voice to non-humans while uh, underscoring or calling attention to the fact that he's, he's speaking for them, that it's all mediated through him, um, and that that mediation is necessary. Um, and I think unavoidable. Um, so there's a way in which certain to go back to the new materialists and I haven't said enough about them. I think some new materialists, um, ignore the fact that it's, that human beings are, um, doing the are, are articulating, uh, the non-human perspective or elaborating it. You know, we're not, even if we think that there's a language that's translatable, uh, as Wittgenstein points out, like if lions could speak, we wouldn't understand them. Like we're putting it in our terms or making them, in, making it intelligible. And I don't think there's any way to avoid that at this point, uh, into, until the non-humans and maybe someday the dolphins are going to rise up and, and they're going to make it incontrovertible that they're speaking to us, you know? Um, but up until this point, we're still representing them. Um, and so we're creating a parliament of things that's where speaking, Uh, parlay is something that we as humans do uh, and we create that parlay for the non-humans and Herodotus sort of illustrates what that would look like textually creating this what I call uh, borrowing from Leslie Kirk this agora of many things this marketplace or public sphere of many things where he's trying to give equal voice uh, Isegoria to as many of them as possible um, while not pretending as if he is behind behind the curtain, uh, or not, not, not hiding behind the curtain, not pretending as if this is unmediated somehow pure. Um, so that I think that, and again, like there are, there are, there are a lot of new materialists who I think are, um, are, are aware of that and not meaning to accuse any particular one of them. Although I think that somebody like Bruno Latour, who probably is not going to listen to this podcast does.
2: Don't sell the always already podcast listeners of shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, I want mean, to take this up because I think he, he acts as if that's not a problem. I mean, there's something about his work that is very Habesian in my reading that especially the late Latour um, where he's sort of saying, Oh, we just need to create this whole new vocabulary and then everything will hang together. And I like, like, let's solve these problems of politics, um, by naming and categorizing and putting everything in its place. And, oh, Hey, like the European union has the best set of political institutions for doing that. Like, I just think it's a little too, uh, it's, it's, it simplifies, um, and reduces and it lacks the kind of wonder uh, that I see in a lot of his other earlier work, especially, but that Herodotus models and has, has taught me. Uh,
1: so there's a question that i wanted to ask you that i kept thinking of throughout the entire read of of your book and and maybe you can talk more about herodotus's actual inquiry as eistor mm-hmm. versus here we go i see i'm i'm making this harder for myself cuz i've tried to <laughs> logo, logo poi, pois poios yeah. the difference between those two um and Related to what we were just talking about as far as speaking on behalf of or trying to give, you know, giving voice or non-voice for the non-human actants. And are we trying to translate them or is there a way to tell a story that doesn't need to translate or find the language for? And one, what I'm, what I'm thinking, I guess, mm-hmm. is to like a more specific, um, way to think through this is uh, Edouard glissant the Mm -hmm. caribbean post-colonial theorist and his poetics of relation he has an essay called for opacity which makes the argument that opacity should be the basis of ethics and politics in that Mm -hmm. you're there are some life forms or you know energies we'll say or what i don't know what you might want to plug in as entities but there are some things that you're never going to not even be able to tell a story about yeah like it's so opaque you won't even be able to narr- narrativize it and and i wonder can we still be A-stores about stories that are opaque if that makes yeah
0: sense? yeah i and i love that glissant reference i need to go back and look at that um and it should be i should be citing it here um you know one of the uh, I'll get to the direct question in a second but like one of the animating texts we're thinking about stories for me is Benjamin's uh, storyteller essay, uh, which I remember reading for the first time in two thousand twelve. Uh, another thing that I assigned in a class and hadn't read yet, and that was when I was working on the first essay uh, on Herodotus that I wrote. And his he, his phrase there, and he's sort of talking about how, and he's writing this in the nineteen forties, how stories have declined in the modern age, because the modern age is all about information and using knowledge, useful knowledge is this relevant um, knowledge that um, stories have an amplitude, he says in the English translation of that, that information lacks stories have an amplitude. And I think that's kind of like this idea of opacity, because the amplitude, I mean, one way that he explicates that is that you can give lots of different interpretations to a story. um, And he illustrates it with a story from Herodotus. Um, but another way is that no interpretation is a final interpretation, uh, which means that there's always a sort of, there's always a remainder, um, in, in the story itself that we can't translate and we can't sort of pull out. Um, so back to the question, uh, Herodotus as a Histor and, and versus as a Logopoyos. Um, so for those who haven't yet read the book, um, and who don't necessarily hear this in our pronunciations. Histor is the root of hysteria. Um, and historia is what Herodotus describes himself as presenting in his, what we call the histories. Um, he doesn't, there's no title that he gives to it. Um, it's a hysteria, um, which I think the best translation is in inquiry. It's where we get the word history from, though. Um, and a histor is somebody who does the inquiry. So I translate it throughout the book as an inquirer. Um, and he refers to his work as an inquiry, uh, at more points than just at the beginning, but he also aligns himself with what was sort of a well-known position, um, social position in antiquity of the Logopoyos, who's somebody who makes up stories or tells stories. Um, and that, uh, is like, you might think of somebody like Aesop, um, and sort of fabulistic storytelling, um, and stories that are entertaining. And there's pretty good evidence that Herodotus' histories were performed because people like to hear them. They're, they're great stories to tell. They're uh, hilarious and moving and um, interesting um, and exotic in certain, in certain ways. Um, so I think that he actually holds these together without resolving them, even though he describes his, what he's doing as presenting a hysteria. It's like this idea of this presentation and the hysteria that have a kind of juridical sense of like per- performing an inquiry in order to make a judgment, um, which would be more of like the, um, exhausting the opacity, um, getting a perfect translation of the amplitude of the narrative. Um, those are always alongside always already with wonder, um, and with, uh, you know, stories that he doesn't actually explain, uh, or even why he's telling them, uh, or that he just finds amusing, um, so like, these, like the current of the histor, if you were just doing inquiry, there would be a kind of straight shot from here's the war, here's the first actor, like here's the background that you need. And like, you know, here's the, the guilty parties. Instead, it's like all of these digressions and all of these, you know, little loops and meanderings um, that give us a lot of pleasure, give us insights from different perspectives um, and don't fully explain themselves. Um, and so I think still retain that amplitude or opacity he's able to hold those together so like thinking about this as like a genre of political theory it he embodies multiple um, perspectives and multiple forms of storytelling and multiple forms of thinking without i think giving one priority over the other Um, it's sort of i mean this is why some people just like discard herodotus and say he doesn't make sense because he doesn't doesn't present himself in a singular way. Um, he's he's sort of holding all the Logopoyos and the Histore together at the same time.
2: I've so I actually want to take that answer and go back to something you kind of opened with in one of your your opening stories um, about how about your relationship with Herodotus, right? So you said something to the effect of how stories are kind of always bigger than the boundaries we tend to put on them. And that Mm -hmm. the fact that Herodotus seems to have some kind of recognition of that is, is one of the draws that he, Mm -hmm. uh, that that he kind of, one of the effects that he can have on us. And so I I wonder if there's a similar sort of dynamic at play with regards to who and what are kind of part of or included within certain particular nomoi. And so, I mean, is it w- would it be um, would it be kind of in the spirit of your reading of Herodotus, maybe more so than Herodotus himself, but in your reading of Herodotus to say that one of the um, ethical and political and epistemological uh, kind of responsibilities is, is that we need to expand who or what is included within. Mm -hmm. our own nomos or in the nomos of the Anthropocene.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that I I think, yes, it is um, expansive and that, that sort of there's something, so Herodotus doesn't give us an example of somebody who, or some group of people, some collective that actually is able to encompass all those who are affected. Um, So, you know, one of the thinkers that's sort of in the background for me, contemporary thinkers, on this that I find useful is Iris Marion Young and her idea of differential solidarity. When she talks mm-hmm. about how like there's solidarity among those who are most immediately affected. And then there's also solidarity with those who are uh, affected, but to a lesser degree. And she's, uh, she develops this concept, I think in her discussion of regionalism. Um, and there's a kind of regionalism that's in the way that I'm drawing out the politics of Herodotus. So this, yes. This project that she's articulating, um, that she's like, uh, I think that she is careful not to say that it can be exhausted to name everyone who is affected by right. a given collective's decisions um, is something that Herodotus, I think, is very aware of. And he's not, although Nomoy, he shows that the best nomoi are those that can be as inclusive as possible. Um, and ultimately, I think Democratic Athens is the closest to that. He also shows Democratic Athens is failing. Um, to include um, every, all the relevant actors um, and sort of being endangered of uh, following the path of kind of reduction and attempts at control that will result in disaster. Um, so nomoy need to be responsive. Well, so NOMOI are human things, right? But they're, they develop in responsive interaction with non-humans. And in the best possible circumstances, they do so with his with all the non-humans who are involved which may be an infinite list uh which means that that is never completely done or never fully fashioned um but herodotus doesn't uh at least give us an example of how that might um actually happen um because it is a sort of infinite horizon um you know, this is where like a lot of people who where i, I presented the nomoy stuff of this book um the most and um, to a lot of different audiences over the years, because I think it was sort of the central and kernel of the political theory part of this book um, and a lot of people would say this sounds really Hegelian like you're talking about a certain like way in which uh, kind of ethical life is constituted through uh, people's free actions, and what's different from Hegel um, maybe is that non-humans are involved, but I think the other thing that's different is that this is if this is hegelian it's like a radical left hegelian hegelianism that's always overcoming itself because no constitution of nomoi is complete or definitive right there's no there's no absolute knowledge that we're like that we arrive at um with the sort of formation of a particular political structure um at most the political structure is one that is that allows for its revolution um internally
2: so hmm okay so I'm- I'm sure on you know, that, <laughs> that last bit, but I mean, so so one kind of maybe way to think about a follow-up question to that that is, uh, you know, maybe like a question within a question about like this, what is and is not part of any given nomos is the way that, you know, I mean, so in the book, this comes, comes through the most with the ways, with with, with when Catherine Yusof comes into your book um, mm-hmm. in A Million Black Anthropocenes or None, right? This notion that, even the the, the the kind of naming of the Anthropocene as the Anthropocene has this kind of like ontological effect of re-inscribing some sort of universal human that ends up kind of erasing or covering over um, or denying the mm-hmm. uh, you know anti-blackness or kind of extractive settler colonialism that eradicates indigenous peoples and indigenous relationships to land and in quote-unquote nature and all of that and so I kind of maybe wanted to push a little further to hear about how how Yusuf um, challenges Her- Herodotus's um, kind of uh, thinking about uh, thinking about nomoi or thinking about um, the way that we name and the way that we narrate this kind of ongoing dynamic interplay between the human or between multiple understandings of the human and the other against whom the human is, um, is kind of constructed mm-hmm. and non-human actives.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, sense that there's some, there's like a little bit farther that you want to go. And so I'm curious if I, if I don't quite get there, like keep pushing, because I, this is something I want to think more about. Um, and especially because I've been thinking about Sylvia Winter's work. And I th- I think, you know, she's, she is somebody that Yusuf is relying on a lot in that book. And I wish that I had grappled with that more you know, in
1: uh, considering. Joel, I'm no sorry. I have to kind of, <laughs> have you, were you like sneaking into our like notes before we even had the, every, every note we took, every question we wanted to ask you, every theorist that reminded us of what we were reading, you've been mentioning and throwing out. So I just want to say, <laughs> yeah, very, very well done thank you you are always welcome to come on, always, whenever you want to
0: <laughs> yeah you're not going to catch me blind no i I don't know maybe uh i think it's you were somehow on the same page um despite not having ever been in a room together um <laughs> but but yeah i mean perhaps it's the god's doing perhaps it is the god's doing um yeah so I'm, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I have fully developed this this area, which is of my thinking, which is where I where I'd like to continue to be pushed. One way of thinking about it is that nomoi themselves um, have a kind of structure, a human centered structure, um, and I've been thinking about like a spatial structure. Um, although they are there, they do have a temporal structure that I don't make as much of. Um, that is premised on a certain idea of what it means to be a human being. Um, and so there is an implicit philosophical anthropology there that uh, I don't fully take out of Herodotus and that certain, a lot of readers of Herodotus and of the um, of Greek texts in general have pointed out that it is um, it's one philosophical anthropology among many um, that's not usually put in relationship with the others. And so like to unpack that a little more, like, there's an i there's a there's an idea of what it means to be a human being as a member of a collective, making norms, um, making nomoi with others in responsive interaction with um, others outside of the say significant others, the the others in your collective um, that uh, Herodotus doesn't fully examine or grapple with, um, and I think that there are sort of indicators that he's aware of that, given his encounters with other um non greek communities, but he still is basically fitting in those other non greek communities to his theory of nomoi, you know his th- into like like into his grammar right um and not not critiquing that grammar um not being fully reflexive about that grammar like what it means to um to have a nomos so like some of an, another thinker that's kind of like ans- on the edge here that I haven't really fully grappled with is Schmidt and like his did was he in the chat am I anticipating that uh, no probably. actually Schmidt was, was
2: no. well, well I mean I, <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I, I had a Schmidt moment when I was trying with James and I'm like Schmidt's like a little too like well now we're really just like doing political theory
0: like <laughs> yeah well we can we can reel it in so that, um, it's it's not only political theory but just just to, to close the thought is um, you know he points out and the one way of um, uh, explaining the origins of the idea of the language of nomos, the term nomos is in Nemain and making boundaries. And so, you know, obviously for, obviously, I mean, for people who know Schmidt, like that's like where he would go. Um, And that, that Herodotus, I think doesn't, doesn't really think outside of that kind of structure. Um, There's something there's something given to him about the boundaries that exist among people, um, and about the fact that pe- different peoples would set up those boundaries um, and perpetuate them, even if they are they could be made more inclusive or porous or whatever. Just that very sort of structure of thinking about um, all things um, is pretty bounded. And it's, so like in that way, like maybe I'm closer to somebody like Latour than somebody like Jane Bennett, who I think is like trying to dissolve those boundaries. More in her work, um, even if she's using language like "the parliament of things" um, coming from Latour. Latour is more structural and, and modern in a certain way that's similar to what I'm take, bringing out of Herodotus. But is that going as far as you want to go, John? Uh, yeah, you want yes, to push yes, me a little more? Yes, yes and no. Um, but I just want to point out that if we're going to end up talking about
2: Latour being a modern, we have to all point out and recognize we have never actually been modern.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to be. Uh, to note that. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe just kind of push. And I, I did not like have a second question when I asked the earlier question, but okay. I did in, in the course of kind of your um, responding to it. And that is that, you know, is one implication of kind of what you've just been speaking through that like Herodotus only gets us so far when we want to like develop this kind of critical edge or critical standpoint. And, and I guess mm-hmm. kind of the broader Question then is, you know, are there, are there are there things in Herodotus or ways of knowing and thinking and theorizing and narrating and storytelling in Herodotus that we can draw on to say, uh, you know, point out, a la Yusuf, that uh, you know the language of the the, the, the the nomos of the of the discourse of the Anthropocene might itself be reinscribing certain boundaries and maybe covering up certain boundary making processes of settler colonialism, of racial capitalism that are in and of themselves kind of constitutive of the age of the Anthropocene. Like, do we, we, you know, is that just kind of a point at which we have to say, you know, um, that's, that's, that's not something that Herodotus can get us to and thus we need some other sort of kind of um, ethical and political standpoint to engage in that critique.
0: Yeah, I think that that's really well put, John. And like that, you know, one way of I think that of agreeing with you and just putting it back in some of the language I use in the book is to say the form or the how of what Herodotus does may be more instructive for the Anthropocene than the what or the content. So if the what is his concern with non-humans and with nomoi and with freedom um, and earthly flourishing, the how is this form of inquiry that includes both. Um, curiosity and wonder, and storytelling, and um, uh, autopsy—looking for oneself—and I don't. In the, the book is uh, elaborating though that how and that what through Herodotus, but in the conclusion, I say like you know we're going to need to have a broader inquiry into the conditions of the Anthropocene, and you know here are some things that it would involve, and that writing that book uh, I haven't yet done, right? And maybe somebody else will do that but one that takes the how and the form of inquiry of Herodotus and really zeroes in on the Anthropocene. I think that's what Yusuf is doing that to some extent. Um, but that's a very short book um, that's, that I think ha- maybe could go farther back. Um, and, but such an inquiry would also want to be you know, integrating the insights of, um, of Yusuf and Sylvia Winter and more new materialists to kind of pull out who are all the actants um, that, the Anthropocene as a frame or as a plot, um, are excluding because yeah, I mean, the Anthropocene centers human beings, right. Mm-hmm. Um, even while it's saying non-humans are like vitally important. Um, and potentially a certain limited inscription of the human. Exactly. Yeah. Not, yeah. So it's centering not only human beings, but a particular human being as Yusuf points out. Right. I, this is making me think of some things
1: and like, I don't know how well chewed out this question will be because it all just came out here now, but like a little bit of winters in this for me in just thinking about Nomos and what you had said about maybe you're a little bit more of a structuralist like Latour than you maybe even want to be, or like by holding on to Nomos or Herod your read of Herodotus's read of his application of Nomos um, by like folding everyone, the world into that, Concept mm-hmm. still, but is Nomos like so? When I was reading the the Nomoi to me, felt Bordeauxian, right? Like they mm-hmm. are or do structuring, structured structures. In that, yes, they're obviously structures, but they have a dynamos to them that they are able to move with us, right? And they're able to mm-hmm. move with the flux and flows of everything. Um, but mm-hmm. this also now is making me think about winter because winter's posture right to, to to like earmark specific genres of man is her own structuralism in some way right like that she's not yeah. going to just throw it all away um so i is it the worst thing in the world to, to be a dynamic structuralist maybe is like my like abstract mm-hmm. question because like <laughs> i've struggled against this myself in that you know, you're like you mean myth is still myth, right? It is a structure, even if it is the, like if your myth yeah. is telling you that things can shape shift, that's going to be like loopy doopy. But it's still a myth. It's still a structure. It has all dynamics built into it already, though. Um, mm-hmm. How yeah, does that I, on the new materialism, perhaps maybe, and like what we're trying to do relative to the Anthropocene? Anthropocene. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so one of I, I yes and. If one way of getting at this question, I think, would be <clears throat> there's this um, exchange in, uh, around Jane Bennett's work that was in contemporary political theory a few years ago, where basically she's being accused, I think, somewhat fairly, of n- eliminating politics um, because she's so materialist in thinking about all these different actants that are non-human. It becomes this kind of stew without uh, any meat, you know, like without any 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 substance or it's hard to tell the different ingredients and which one is giving like the primary flavor if I'm going to stay with the metaphor but so that like I really have found a lot of a lot of um, sustenance in her version of New Materialist I mean it's not just what what she talks about but the way in which she evokes it um, in her writing which is I think so such such beautiful and um, uh, precise writing Um, but I also thought There needs to be more of a structure, like there needs to be more of a politics um, that's coming out of this. And for me, when I say, like, what's the politics, it it actually almost always is, it is always wanting a sort of structural answer, like what are the structures of power and how do those structures change? Um, And yeah, maybe Herodotus is the most dynamic structuralist um, theorist that I could find, which is why I'm still like making the structural argument, but he sees them as so... Um, malleable and historical and you know the sense of nomoy as i alluded to of being can be both instantiated as law and uh, put on stone tablets um, but also can be as flexible as a kind of custom that um, ebbs and flows depending on uh, who the people are who are practicing it
1: I, perhaps um, we could be a little more specific to help our listeners here too because mm-hmm. one of the examples you provide is herodotus's description of this is it the scythians am i mm-hmm.
0: the scythians I, yeah
1: Scythians, and they're living in, I guess, like Northern Europe or middle, mm-hmm. middle of the European continent, and they're more riverine, rocky. Mm-hmm. Like, so can you describe how they have nomoi as well? Like in Herodotus's view, they have their own nomoi, which is an interest, right? That they can have their own, even though that's not their concept. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. And also like that he, it's, it was, I, I think a radical idea that these quote unquote barbarians, like these non-Greeks um, could be explained through this concept. So there's something about saying that they have no That's also right. like, what, uh, how could they have no Like they're not right. Greek. Cause
1: there's a wonder um, that comes in here as well, right? That there's a, he wants to marvel at what they've been able to accomplish.
0: Exactly. So like maybe the the simplest sort of way of describing the Scythians. And I think of them, they're in the Northern Black Sea area. So like Romania um, and com- countries that are sort of on, on the edge of like what is now like Ukraine, things like that. Um, and if you want a wonderful evocation of that place, the end of Patrick Lee from Moore's uh, trilogy about walking across Europe describes all these rivers that now have been dammed up and like the, the whole environment's been changed. But in Herodotus's day, these were amazing, like powerful rivers that, um laced through that terrain and um created a very inhospitable unfamiliar environment you know there weren't a lot of rivers in on the greece greek peninsula or rivers of this size um because it's pretty far south i guess and the rivers drained into the black sea that were from more northerly areas so the scythians are able to have a kind of nomadic quote-unquote civilization they um, you, rather than having like cooking vessels, they use the parts of the animals that they kill to cook the animals and um, they, they make their fires with bones because there isn't a lot of wood around. Um, they, the only signs Herodotus says of their having been in a place is that they have these grave mounds or these uh, funeral uh, monuments. Um, and so that allows them to be, um, to escape all forms of oppression. And Herodotus thinks that this is marvelous and amazing. Um, that they really protect uh, themselves by not um, needing to be in any particular place um, and that that allows them to um, escape the Persians when the huge, massive Persian army is invading the Scythians, um, just, despite being warned by a counselor that, you know, they don't have anything that you're going to want because they don't, like, accumulate things the way that the Persians did. Um, so that their nomoi are um, flexible... And dynamic and responsive to that environment um, because that environment affords this movement and allows them to develop a knowledge of the terrain that's highly uh, specialized and um, contextual and textured, and which is itself a strategic advantage to remain free uh, from you know, the threats of outsiders.
1: And I guess you could say that the only way that one might be able to flourish in those kinds of topographies would be to like get on with the get on and to mm-hmm. not right like to to try to be non uh, to, to 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 settle i suppose would have maybe you know and i guess this is all we're taking herodotus's reports here but mm-hmm. there's something in all of these terms that feel like they keep floating back on each other right that like the nomoi tend to eudaimonia and eudaimonia as a horizon will always sort of like push back on Nomoy and it all, it's like this ecological turning around that um, mm-hmm. the dynamism is just in the, pre, right. Cause there's like a performative piece of your, right. This piece, like, it has to be performed. Nomoy have to be performed. They just, mm-hmm. they don't live anywhere else other than in their performance, which mm-hmm. is an interesting, you didn't use the word performance, but there, you know, there's a performance studies sort of like application mm-hmm. here that I, and maybe a Deleuzean, you know, Deleuze and Guattari understanding of performance and politics.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but I, again, these are thoughts that I'm just thinking as we've been talking. So I don't know where I'm going per se. Um, you can just jump in.
0: Well, one thing is that I think Herodotus is the the vision of eudaimonia and of earthly flourishing is highly differentiated. And And that, you know, if you think about the way that Aristotle, and I'm not meaning to criticize Aristotle, whom I admire and learned much from, but like horiz- the horizon of eudaimonia is the polis. Right? You have to live in a polis that's con- constituted in a particular way um, for you to flourish. Um, and Herodotus is saying that's like if we thought only in that way, we couldn't explain the flourishing of all of these other communities. Uh, for one, who don't live in polis, um, and also we would be fundamentally limited if we ourselves. Uh, didn't live in Apollos um and I you know I talk a little bit about in the book how he Herodotus was born on what's now the tur- coast of western coast of Turkey which is this like liminal border zone between the east quote unquote and persians and other peoples who lived in you know, the what like the middle east and farther in what do we call turkey now um, and the west the greek world and it was a place where like the ruins of the war between east and west were were all around him and I think that he saw that there couldn't only be one way to live and flourish. You know that 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 that's not possible because this was like an incredibly polyglottal, a multicultural, um, hybrid area that he came of age in, and then traveling around the Mediterranean, encountering all these other people, uh, only reinforced that idea. Um, so this this flourishing, um, there is a sort of structure to it of nomoi, but as you said, James. That those nomoi are really dynamic and they're differentiated. They're not. um, There's not much that can be shared among them other than the fact that they're what people do. um, And collectively, uh, for them to be, uh, Herodotus thinks, for them to be most responsive and adaptive and not sort of uh, fail to sustain the communities that are creating them, they need to be relatively equal and have space for the kind of inquiry that he's showing us, that he's performing. Um, but that doesn't give them that much structure. You know, it doesn't, set that much substance. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty minimal condition, which means they can, the rest of them can be very different. Mm.
2: I want to, I want to follow up on that actually with, uh, with a question from Daniel Hanley, who, uh,
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it because, because, because I think it, it gets into these questions about the performativity of Herodotus's histories and also kind of the performativity of, of, your, of your book. Uh, so Danielle was wondering kind of what for you motivated the interweaving of the, the what chapters and mm-hmm. the how chapters, and then also what effects that generated for you in the process of writing, what, you hope, what effects you hope that generates for your readers. And then I think kind of I would tack on, what are kind of the political effects or what are the politics of the interweaving, the what chapters and the how chapters in the book?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great question, Danielle. Thank you. Um, I think one of the things that I've always been interested in, and this like actually goes back to the story of Plato's Symposium and of Nietzsche, is is form um, and how the forms of uh, understanding or of knowledge uh, afford um, different uh different insights. Um, So it's not just a matter of perspective, it's also a matter of how are we holding whatever understanding we have and how is that vessel of holding it um, allow us to see some things and not other things uh, or allow us to do some things and not other things. And that's all like pretty abstract, but you might think about it in terms of like, what's the difference between a myth um, and a logical account, a logos um, in ancient Greek, or what's the difference between a political theory, uh, which is an argument um, that's making claims and adducing evidence, um, and a tragedy or a novel, say. Um, so I, like, I've written a lot of stuff on other forms too, like on poetry and on novels. And I think one of the things, that, and the other things that attracts me to just working in ancient Greek contexts is that you had this political discourse around Athens that was filled with different forms, people doing different things to think about politics, whether that's writing comedies or tragedies or dialogues um, or not writing anything at all like Socrates or histories um, or poetry. Um, so I really, I think I'm, this is, I, I'm, I'm trying to call attention to how Herodotus is offering us as people who want to think about collective life. I won't just say political theorists. He's um, offering us a form or a genre for doing so, which is um, capacious. In holding kind of a different sets of forms that he's drawing on, um, and so moving between, so I think a, a more con- conventional or typical uh, political theory uh, interpretation of Herodotus would just focus on the what, like what is what is the political theory that's there, um, you know? So like Herodotus as a political theorist, here are the concepts that he gives us that are useful for thinking about politics generally that aren't just, their use is not just limited to the things that Herodotus is talking about, but they illuminate political things um, in the present to some degree. And in that sense, like, I've got your answer, right? I've got, like, three concepts that I think is useful <laughs> for thinking about, right? The, and um, I think I could have written that book, and I just would have been very dissatisfied because it would have felt like I was somehow doing violence to the expansiveness of Herodotus's form if I wasn't calling attention to the fact that he is he is himself as the uh, author of the histories is always calling attention to how he has arrived at those ideas, um, how he has come to see these as useful terms um, and sort of showing their, their usefulness um, in their, in their use uh, among the communities that he's describing. So the, the, those what things I interweave in part to like break from the spell of, oh, this is what political theory is. It's about offering concepts. Instead to say, well, political theory is also, has a certain set of assumptions about what political theory involves as a form. It involves making arguments um, and we can destabilize those. Um, And in that sense, like a lot of the, this is where I don't, I hope that it's not limited to political theory. Um, And I tried to sort of tone down my, in vain against that particular Subdiscipline because um, Herodotus is useful um, and like actually is uh, in 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 many ways like closer to what cultural anthropologists are doing today or people in many fields who are sort of employing anthropological ethnographic um, autoethnographic methods that political theorists you know could benefit from um, but that are also being done so I don't want to pretend as if they're they're not being done or somebody like Lisa Wadine. Uh, who is a political scientist? I think is like very Herodotian um, in the way that she's so attentive to um, what I'll call cultural structures, but they're really the nomoi of the communities where she's trying to understand how authoritarianism works, right, and why it's sustained um, in Syria or in Yemen, um, or somebody like Timothy Mitchell, who I'm pretty sure is trained as a historian, but also has a sense of. Uh, of nomoi as dynamic, flexible structures um, that uh, we need to, and that, uh, and of the importance of non humans in particular in the way those structures develop and and change.
2: Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, I think maybe we have two more questions, both like very big questions. Um, yeah. In their scale, to to maybe ask you. So I kept turning over and over. As I was reading your book, um, one particular phrase from Herodotus' opening to the histories, right? Mm-hmm. So to kind of read it for the, for the, for the, for the reader, for the listener. Um, so he opens, here are presented the results of the inquiry carried out by Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Mm-hmm. The purpose is to prevent the traces of human events from being erased by time. And I really, really was trying to think through this idea of preventing the traces of human events from being erased by time Mm -hmm. in the context of the Anthropocene, right? Because Mm -hmm. it seems to me that the the problem or a problem of the Anthropocene is somewhat the reverse of that. Like a failure to narrativize (laughs) the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene or the Plantationocene as such would let time... Like erase the traces and transformations of human events that have like transformed time itself. So like and this, yeah. is this is why it's kind of big and very meta and admittedly terribly elaborated and formed question. But I just kind of wanted to open it up to give you the chance to kind of unspool some of your thinking about that particular element of Herodotus's opening of the Histories as kind of an opening on to the way we might conceptualize and respond to
0: discourses or theories of the anthropocene. Yeah, because I mean, I'm thinking about Timothy Mitchell again. No, it's not Timothy Mitchell, Timothy Morton, and this idea of hyper objects, right? That there are like human things that are enduring far too long. um, And that even when human beings no longer roam the earth, like our artifacts are going to be spread everywhere whether that's the billions of chicken bones or like the plastic uh, garbage bags or whatever. Um, And Herodotus does not live in a world where that's even imaginable, right? Like he lives in a world where human life seems very fragile and tenuous and precarious. And so there's part of what he's doing here is, is remembering it so that it's not um, forgotten so that these wonderful things are still still there to inspire um, action and to, to instruct um, judgment. So I think one, I mean, in that way, like what I just said, we don't need Herodotus at all, right? We need somebody who, who is uh, paying attention to um, how uh, civilizations can, can disappear and like leave no trace or do less harm. Um, but a, a flip side of that is to say, what if we were to to, to take up this kind of inquiry and, and remembrance and political remembrance for non-humans um, uh, or for, the humans who aren't included in the human to think about winter and yusof um and those that task i think uh, herodotus could really speak to um because again of this sense of like wonder you know how do how do we remember um species that have been eliminated without anthropomorphizing them without having like a kind of human nostalgia for them and like inhabiting those places herodotus would be helpful for for that or how do we remember lost languages uh, indigenous languages uh, without, you know, just reducing them to our own. Like that's, I don't, I don't really know where to begin with that, but I think that that's, that's a kind of task that Herodotus would inspire and uh, attention to. Um, and that, in the, the the reason why Herodotus would still be useful there is this sense of wonder, but also this sense that um, the stories we tell really matter because they're sort of the way that we hold nomoi, And so it's sort of like that idea of, if you're going to have a a discussion of something to take account of who's not in the room, like who's not at the table, that sort of move is something that I think Herodotus brings us to understand, uh, as, as important as politically vital. Um, but I think, you know, in a way, John, like your question goes back to this, the, the problem of the human being, um, and the fact, I mean, just for me that I'm, I'm deeply interested in what it means to be a human being, um, but Herodotus allows me to, um, and allows his readers not to ask too deeply into what's excluded from what's taken for granted as the human being and as human. Um, and in that sense, like the Historia, as this human undertaking, both has an opacity about, or ignores the potential opacity of human being, um, and, um, centers the human in a way that, um, doesn't give enough attention to the non, to non-humans. I mean, like, what would it look like to have a, de- a non-human decentered centered um, history? Uh, I'd love to see that.
1: Last question as we are wrapping this up, Joel, it's been a really enlivening um, conversation. And um, I thank you for, I appreciate what you've brought into this conversation uh, in your own Herodotian way, perhaps, right? Of like, opening up your own inquiry as you've discussed it with us here and in, in a way that doesn't always happen per se in this way. So I, this has been special. I just want to make a note of that. Um, and then lastly, because like, okay, the last question is sort of like a cheap, always it's the last question for every book <laughs> especially in a neoliberal world where we're so acclimated to getting takeaways and actionables, but uh, everything we've talked about up to this point, say I'm a listener, and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Oh, mm-hmm. So, and you mentioned about this fall, I, or maybe this wasn't in recording, but we talked before about like the po- the political context of our time globally. But it's, you know, we're in the United States, the three of us here. But like, what we're going to be doing this fall, as far as our election, has global ramifications in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. And so, how would any of us who want to make these Herodotian interventions. And I guess the question is like, it has to be deeply nestled within your nomos, how one might even be able to take action. Mm-hmm. Um, but where is the horizon of politics in 2020? And not maybe mm-hmm. for Herodotus, right? But like, how do I be a 2020 Herodotian in my political p- subjecthood?
0: Yeah. That's an enormous question. We haven't, um, talked much about the conclusion of the book where I kind of try to release the academic tendency to be careful and conservative about concluding and instead just sort of start envisioning, um, and imagining another way of being together. Um, and I think that like, so I want to try to do something like that. Um, which might be a little less concrete than some listeners might want. But how do we envision another uh, mode of political uh, collective life um, that's beyond this one that is so structured by um, oppression and domination uh, within human communities and then outside of human communities? And I think Herodotus is actually really uh, useful in that respect uh, for for giving us a kind of starting point of well it comes down to what we're doing um, and who and and how we are reinstantiating instantiating and reconstituting with everything that we do the society that we in which we live and in that sense like we have an enormous amount of power uh, democracy was invented when people came together and refused the structure of domination that was taken for granted as the only way that things could be and like i see a lot of hope right now in the streets of the United States of people doing the same thing and saying like, we thought that there was only one way for us to maintain quote unquote public order with police and collectively we're going to refuse that. And we're going to invent a new form, uh, which is what Herodotus describes happens in Athens uh, of a creation of new political form by the people uh, and illustrating how that we Um, the first person plural that I avoid using across the book until the very end Um, that we is the source of power and flourishing like, and only in the organization of the we uh, is there any hope of earthly flourishing, but that we's got to be more than just the we we've taken for granted, you know, of America say um, or of good Americans or uh, birthright uh, entitled Americans, because we all know or three of us, at least most of the listeners, I assume that there are far more people and non people affected than what those we's include. Um, and Herodotus is a warning against the idea that we, that a small group can claim the we and sort of create a sustainable structure, uh, for its own benefit without meaning its demise. Um, I often say maybe this is like the place to end that one of the things I love about Herodotus and about a lot of the thinkers of ancient Greece is that human beings don't matter that much. You know, like they, they're going to get cut down. Um, we are like, we're, we're ephemeral. We're creatures of a day. And that sort of gives this real, this amazing beautiful, beautiful, beauty and preciousness to, to human life. But this modern idea, like that we should sustain human life at all costs and for as long as possible is just completely, I think, absurd to that mindset. Um, so, like, burn bright and then then fade, and that maybe that like that's a reason that can be a, a mantra to impel political action that's a little less uh, careful and concerned with maintaining order um, or maintaining continuity, and is a little more committed to earthly flourishing
1: that that's beautiful actually um and i think that is a really great place to to end um and, and allow our, our our listeners to continue to populate maybe some of those visions um as they they think about this in in their own time um john do you have any final thoughts
2: that was that you you, you got it i don't need anything <laughs>
0: Well, let me thank both of you cuz this was really not only was it a lot of fun, um but it was like brought me to the edges of my own thinking in ways that I know I'm going to be returning to and and working out into the future. So, hope this is the first of ongoing conversation. We
1: Definitely. You know, just I guess in la- the last thing that I'm now thinking about is your description of Anthropos, right? As a burning bright and fading away puts a little bit more of wonder into whatever it is that this we that we might be is right and that if we're not something to preserve at all costs and maybe we are something to just like wonder and marvel at while we have it um Mm
0: -hmm. you know and then that's that (laughs) yeah and then there's an end you know because every story has an end
1: and every podcast episode must offer. <laughs> I,
2: I was wondering if you were going to do that. I wasn't sure. So, Jim, thank you for, for pushing the issue. So. Well,
1: thank you, listeners. Thank you, Joel, John. Um, on behalf of all of us here at Always Already, have a Always Already day.
0: Thanks a lot. Take care.
2: Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Always Already Podcast, which is created by James Pallowney Jr., Rachel Brown, Emily Crandall, Sidisar, Beely Altman, and John McMahon. Visit our website, AlwaysReadyPodcast.wordpress.com. Email us texts you'd like us to discuss, advice, questions to answer, dreams to analyze, to gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Always Already On. um, And subscribe to us on Stitcher or Spotify or iTunes, Apple. And tell your friends to do the same and leave us a writing. Thank you to our wonderful patrons who contribute to our Patreon. Uh, We'll have a transcript of our long interview with Frank Willerson coming out soon. Thanks to our patrons. And I will be looking forward to doing more episode transcriptions in the future. We'd like to thank our current patrons in the Always Already Medici Club, Jason and Laura. We'd like to thank our patrons in the Always Already Circle of Trust, Genevieve, Guava, Extinction, Genda, David, Stephanie, Roddy, Ariel, and Catherine. In the Tumblr BFF from Canada tier, we'd like to thank Amanda and Ian. And in the Friend of the Podcast tier, we would like to thank Laura, Natalie, Thomas, Rachel, and Matthew. Thank you to Bad Infinity for their song Mirrors, which you heard at the beginning of the episode. And always already thank you to B, whose cover of Landslide you're listening to right now. Till next time, have an always ready day.